All right. So we're going to be in Judges 8, and we're going to finish out Chapter 8 of Judges today. So I'll give you guys a sec to turn there. And I'm just going to read uh, verse 22 through the end. It says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that was requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and Gideon made an e- and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in the city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died, died in a good old age, and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abizarites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again, and whored after the Baals, and made Baal Barath their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their god, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is to Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done for Israel. So these verses conclude chapter 8, and we're just going to try to walk through them as we do every week um, in order and try to figure out what is the the main idea of the text, um, and then how can we put that on the ground for us uh, tonight. The title of this study is Gideon's Demise. Uh, so far in the story of Gideon, uh, throughout Judges, I've put a relatively positive light on Gideon, and I think that that's in line with the, what the author of Judges is doing. He's given us pretty much every reason to like Gideon. Uh, Gideon is, well, he's a fearful man, but nevertheless, he's a man who God has chosen. Uh, he's a man who seeks, seeks the Lord, who, who wants to know what the will of the Lord is. He confirms that will. He faithfully leads his men into battle. Um, and at every step of the way, while he is uh, an imperfect man, he's still nevertheless a faithful judge, a faithful savior of the Israelites. That is, until we get here, where the text takes a very sharp turn. And you'll notice this turn comes after the conquest is done, after what the Lord told Gideon to do has been completed. This is kind of the termination of God's orders, if you will. And from this point forward, verse 22 through the end of the chapter, there's we're kind of in uncharted territory. Everything else Gideon has done has been through the lens of God said it, and then Gideon questions him, and then Gideon does it. But at this point in time, Gideon's doing something, and he's going to go into kind of an uncharted area of of leadership that God hasn't necessarily told him to go into. And so you're going to see this kind of downfall as it happens. And so we're just going to pick that apart and and try to learn from from Gideon's uh, life. So verse 22 uh, introduces to us the first question that you see in this text, which is the people going to Gideon and asking him to rule over them. He says, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Now, 
This is the people of Israel trying to institute Gideon as a leader, but not only as a leader, as like a monarchical leader. So he wants, they want Gideon to lead, then they want his son to lead after him, then they want that son to lead after him. So they're trying to institute a kingship like the kingship of all the other people around them. That's different than Israel's pattern in the past, right? Moses didn't leave for them his son to take over. Moses left the kingdom to Joshua. Joshua did not leave them his son to take over. Joshua left it to the tribe of Judah. Now we've kind of seen Israel has not had this pattern of one family or one household dynasty taking over the land and leading the people generation after generation. So the people are trying to institute that. They're trying to gain some sense of stability. And at first, you'll notice in verse 23, it seems like Gideon says, I'm not going to take this kingship. But I want you to look again with me at the text, and I'm going to try to make the case that Gideon actually does in these verses accept the kingship. And that he also uh, goes about doing that in a very idolatrous way. So the first thing you'll notice in Gideon's response is he says, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. So there it seems that he's rejected their statement, their, their request for him to lead. And you'll notice then the following statement. He says that Yahweh will rule over you or the Lord will rule over you. So it seems that Gideon is saying, no, I'm not going to be king. We're going to do what we've always done and let God rule over us. But that's made more complex by the fact that the very next thing Gideon does is he makes himself an ephod out of gold, which is the means by which the Israelites determine God's will for them. And that's reserved typically for the high priest. And he would use the Urim and the Thummim, which is two means of defining, defining God's will. And that would be kept in the ephod. And that was only for the Levitical priests. And so they would discern God's will and they would find out what God wanted. And then they would take the will of God to the people. And so while Gideon says, God will rule over you, the very next thing he does is he puts himself in a position where he can say, I have a word from the Lord. And so you'll notice how this goes about. And that's confirmed, this kind of negative kind of um, language is confirmed, even by the text. I'm just going to skip ahead down to verse 27, where it says that Israel hoard after it there. This is an indication to us that they're doing something incorrect. And that would be strange because the ephod was a correct way of contacting God, given that it was a Levitical priest, the high priest was the only person who was allowed to do this. And even then only in the temple area, they weren't allowed to do this just whenever they wanted to. But Gideon sets himself up in a position where he can say, I have a word from God. There's other kind of evidences in the text that give us indication that Gideon actually does accept the charge of kingship. Um, one of them is something that uh, I, had to, I had to read a commentary to figure this out because I don't know Hebrew. But the word Abimelech, what he names his son, the, son, the only son who's named here uh, from the concubine, Abimelech means son of the king. So he names his child son of the king. So to us, it gives us an indication that he actually did not reject kingship, but he rather took it on in more of like a, a pastoral um, kingship kind of model, a priest king, if you will, just like Moses was, a priest leader over the people. So it seems that if you're, you're following the text, it seems that Gideon is actually accepting his charge to be a leader. And then that might not have been negative, except for that all the things he does thereafter lead us to understand that once he accepts this leadership, it's pretty much straight downhill from here. So he accepts uh, the leadership there. And the very next thing he does is he demands from them for them to give him uh, the ability or the materials to make for himself an ephod. Now, the ephod, like I said earlier, is a means of obtaining God's revelation. And I want to give you a cross-reference text. The, the Urim and the Thurim and the Ephod is only mentioned a handful of times in Scripture. So we're going to look at one of those times uh, together. It's in Numbers 27. Uh, 
And so you're going to see, I'm going to start reading in verse 19 of Numbers 20, uh, 27. Um, and they're, they're talking about how Joshua is going to succeed Moses. And they're talking about how they're going to pass over authority to Joshua. And so they say, make him stand before Eliezer, the priest, and all the congregation. And you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority that all the congregation of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eliezer, the priest. Now, Eliezer is the high priest. He shall stand before Eliezer, the priest, who shall inquire of him for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord, that this word shall go out and that his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. So as part of this ordination process, as part of discerning God's will to have Joshua as leader, they need to go through the high priest. They need to inquire of God through the high priest using the Urim and the Thummim, which is with, contained within the ephod. And they're going to <clears throat> discern, is this God's will that Joshua is to take over after Moses? And on that confirmation, when that happens, then they can bestow their authority into Joshua. That, that is God's will that Joshua succeeds Moses in leadership. But you'll notice in scripture that it's limited. They, they can't just take the ephod themselves and do it. They have to go to Eliezer, the high priest. He's the one who has the authority to discern the will of God in this way. So what, what Gideon does to us is clear. We've already just talked about the fact he's not a Levite. So he's disqualified from being a priest. Nevertheless, he, he, he puts himself in the position where he has priestly authority, priestly insight by means of this ephod. So he's going to put, set himself up as there's a high priest. We don't really know where the ephod is right now in the book of Judges. Uh, it hasn't been destroyed likely because that would have likely been mentioned. Um, but it seems that Gideon is setting himself up almost as like a second authority to have divine revelation straight to the people. And that's interesting because you'll notice that that's also the kind of way that Saul goes wrong, where he tries to seek divine revelation apart from the priesthood. He tries to go outside of Samuel. He tries to go outside of the revelation that God has given him. And that even leads to him using a a necromancer to discern God's will. And so that's a downhill slope for Saul. And you'll notice even for Gideon, it's the same kind of pattern. And so Gideon is going to seek for himself special revelation. He makes for himself this ephod. And he does so in such a way that it leads all of the people of Israel astray. Now, before we move on from, from that kind of low note, that very somber note, that Gideon, who's been this very great leader for the Israelites, has fallen in this kind of way, I think there's a lot of things that we can learn once again about human nature, which is not Gideon's uniquely. It's all of our nature. We have this, we have this tendency towards um, wanting to seek God's will apart from the means in which God gives us to seek his will. And you'll notice this out of Gideon. He has a means of seeking God's will. God has so far directly contacted him when, he needs Gideon's, when Gideon needs to hear from the Lord. And now Gideon's setting himself up to actually reverse that train and get access to God in the same way, even though he's not been told to do so. And so it it kind of points to us that we have that same kind of tendency, that God gives us his means of revelation, his means of understanding, and rather than trusting the plain, ordinary means of how we can discern God's will, we often like to look for additional accesses to God, additional ways to discern his will. Um, We will say that we want to, uh, we we don't want to read scripture necessarily, that's, you know, that's great, it's a good source of God's will, Um, but we want, you know, a direct line of communication. And while Gideon does it by fashioning this ephod with a very expensive um, set of gold and spoils of war, we, we do the same kind of thing where we say, I want God's specific voice in my life for, for this event or this decision, or um, should I do this or that? I really need God to say, thus saith the Lord, or the Holy Spirit has told me, or um, 
whatever, however you've heard that phrase before. We often do this kind of thing, um, thinking that that is how God does always reveal his will to us. And it's, it shouldn't surprise us that Gideon wants that because that's how God has revealed his will thus far to Gideon. Um, but in our lives, uh, that's often not been the case. We have the completed text of scripture, so we don't hear from God in that same way anymore. But nevertheless, we seek that out all the time. And so I think it, it points to us that while Gideon does this and we can look and say, how, it, how come Gideon goes around God's will? Um, it seems to me that we, we have a tendency even within our own hearts to try to do that same kind of thing um, outside of his ordinary means of revelation. The other thing uh, you'll notice in the text, and I'm going to pick up again in verse 27, um, is that Gideon makes the ephod and he puts it in the city in Ophrah. And you'll notice that all of Israel goes after this as well. It says all of Israel hoard after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Gideon and his whole family go down this path of this, this distorted understanding of God's revelation. And what you notice here is the, it's not just Gideon, who's the leader, but also all the people who are under his leadership make this same kind of mistake. They follow after Gideon, he misleads them, and he leads them astray. And I think that there's, there's a lot of things we can learn, learn from that. Um, but I think the thing I really want to spell home here is that Gideon is, um, he's a leader, he falls in this kind of way. And so we as people should be cautious, not always to just, whenever a leader does something, just jump blindly in after whatever they do. Um, the people of Israel like to do that with their leaders. So when they don't have a leader, they'll do whatever. When they do have a leader... You know, they'll do whatever he does. If he's a good leader, a good king, it typically restrains them. If he's not a good leader or a good king, they typically let loose again and do whatever they want. And so I think that um, by God's grace, though, there's times in which we see the people of Israel being actually more godly than even their leaders. And in the New Testament, you see that kind of thing as well, where there are sometimes congregations that are more godly than the people who are, who are leading them. And thus those leaders are disqualified and they can no longer lead or they're false teachers and they're kind of cast out of the group. And so there's wisdom in not just following blindly after leaders, because we see in scripture consistently that leaders can fail. Leaders can fall short of um, even a good standard. Um, the next thing you see uh, in verse 28 right after that is that it kind of pivots, that this is kind of the conclusion statement. And then it says, so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So that's that summary statement that we're kind of used to in the judges. Um, this is the last time you're going to see that statement in the entire book. So this is the last time we're told that the land actually attains rest from the deliverance of a judge. From this point forward, it's pretty much a straight degeneration of the people of Israel. So often judges is talked about like a cycle, like there's the sin, cry out, deliverance, um, and then, uh, they, then they fall back into, they get rest from that deliverance and they fall back into sin. Well, at a certain point in time, the rest piece kind of falls out of that cycle and it becomes kind of a degeneration. And then at a certain point in time, the repentance doesn't become so authentic. And then eventually you see that the judges themselves slide out and they're not actually quite very good deliverers either. And so it's kind of, it, what judges is telling us about is what it looks like when a people is just rebellious against God and does not want to obey the God who continues to rescue them. And so you're gonna see as we move through the book, this kind of unwinding, if you will, of that, that cycle of repentance. Um, and then we get uh, these last couple of verses here um, where we see that um, he has uh, a lot of wives and many sons. By the way, that's another reason why it's likely that he was a king because he has a harem of women. And so it's 
unlikely that an average person in the Israelite community would have been able to do that, but he's able to have 70 sons. Um, so he's got a lot of wives and he's got a lot of offspring as a result of that. Um, he names obviously his son there, Abimelech. And then it says that he was di that he died in, his good, in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father. And then we see as soon as Gideon passes away, as soon as he dies, the people of Israel once again turn right back to their sinfulness. Um, and at this point, we're eight chapters into Judges. That shouldn't shock us, but it, it kind of has this almost sad inevitability to it. Where if you're, if you're watching a movie and like there's a flat character in the movie, you kind of can expect that they're going to do that same dumb thing all the time. And uh, the people of Israel are kind of that flat character in the book of Judges where you can kind of, with, with great frustration, look at and see, ah, oh, there again, they're going astray, they're following after their own passions and desires. Um, they're going to once again worship the Baals, they're going to make, in this case, a specific Baal, Baal Berith, their God. And they're going to once again forget that God is their God and they're going to um, turn themselves back over into idolatry. And so, um, and that's sad because the, the author of Judges specifically underscores for us in verse 34 that they turn away from God, they do not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And you'll notice that kind of language of, he delivered them on, on every side from all their enemies, every time they sinned, and yet they reject the Lord, they, yet they forget him. And they did not show steadfast love even to God's leader, Jerubabel. They don't even show steadfast love to him or to his family, who at this point in time has been responsible for establishing that peace. And so what can we learn then from um, Gideon's demise, Gideon's downfall in these verses? I think Gideon primarily shows us um, that while you can start the race really strong, it's often very difficult to finish that race just as strong. Paul actually writes to um, the church in Corinth that they should, that in a race, only one athlete can, can win the prize. And so if you're going to run this race, this Christian life, you wanna run it in such a way that you're actually going to be able to obtain the prize. You wanna run it in such a way where you're gonna finish strong. And if you know anything about racing and running, I don't know much, but I hear Jared talk about it a lot. And when you're towards the end of the race, you're supposed to actually finish by going faster. You're supposed to finish by picking up speed. The people who lose races are the ones who, who run too hard in the beginning and they finish terribly, they finish slowly. They don't actually finish with any kind of strength or vigor to them. And Gideon does it here. Uh, Samson's gonna do the same thing. Saul's gonna do the same thing. David's gonna do the same thing. Solomon's gonna do the same thing. All of the sons of the kings of Israel are gonna do the exact same thing. So if you're reading your Bible and you're doing it chronologically, this is not something to become shocked by. It's also not something to become desensitized towards. You don't want to become so dull towards this pattern. You want to, every time you see that, remind yourself of the fact that finishing strong is extremely important, both in the, the times of the kings and even now in the Christian life. It's very, very important to finish strong. And then I, I think the, the biggest example that Gideon gives us is that um, he, he paints a picture by what he lacks of the greater judge who is to come the judge who does finish well, the one who is obedient to God in all ways, who's, who's always seeking the appropriate means of revelation from God through prayer on his knees all night, who, who studies the scriptures, who knows them well, who's obedient in every way, who's, who's submissive to the will of God in, at every step of the way. And that's the, the savior that we ultimately need. All the other deliverers, all the other saviors that we've met so far have been inadequate in some kind of a way. And that's gonna continue to happen. In fact, the whole Old Testament is pregnant with that idea of 
Great, but not perfect. Close, but not really close. Really far off. The, the whole thing is painting a picture of us, for us, of what we ought to expect, which is a, a savior who's going to be better, more perfect, higher, closer to God, more obedient, um, a better leader, uh, a better server. Um, and that comes ultimately in the New Testament in the person of Christ, who's obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. And he finishes well. And not only does he finish well, he also then resurrects from the grave and, and starts off <laughs> once again, even better. And so, and that, I think that gives us a lot of encouragement because the Bible doesn't end its revelation in the book of Judges. It continues and we stand um, after that point of revelation has concluded with the New Testament. And we have this encouragement of the judge who actually fits the mold, completes it, and, and does it in a way that's more perfect than Gideon. So while this is a low note in scripture, uh, this is not where scripture concludes. And I think that's an important thing uh, for us to keep in mind as well. So uh, let's close in prayer and then uh, we can go to conversation. Father God, we are so thankful for uh, this time, Lord. Um, have you given us um, eyes to see and ears to hear your truth, Lord, um, to respond uh, to your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that as we uh, reflect on these truths and we reflect on these verses and uh, Gideon's life, um, that we would examine even our own hearts and our own lives um, and that this does not be a story buried uh, thousands of years ago in history uh, that's interesting to learn about but um, something that would even help us to uh, live our lives tomorrow in a way that's more obedient um, to, to love you better to see you as uh, more beautiful and, and more perfect God um, because in every way that humans fall short I think it amplifies your glory and um, your inability to fall short and so we thank you for that truth um, and we pray that you would continue to um, be with us tonight as we uh, continue in conversation. Uh, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.